We return this morning to 2 Peter, pick up where we left off at the end of chapter 1. And you may recall that two weeks ago we began this little letter and we noted that Peter's problem from the outset is that he's having to refute false teaching that has crept into the community and has bred all kinds of misunderstandings for both doctrine and practice of the church. And so at the outset, he refuted some errors related to Christian living, looking at the question of how is God's grace operative on the ground? But today, Peter's going to turn our attention to, the, to the, really the heart of his argument in the letter, and that is to the notion from these false teachers that we cannot trust in the return of Christ in glory. That is indeed why they're promoting license. If Jesus is not coming back in glory, why does any of this matter? Why not just live for our own lusts and greed? Of course, Peter will have none of that. And so we'll see this morning how he sets out to refute this false teaching, which will always lead to false practice. And it's so important to see where Peter roots his argument here, because the rest of his letter hinges on it. So here we go, 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 12. And you young Christians who are with us, Young disciples, can you listen for something? Peter is going to say that he witnessed something with his eyes. He was an eyewitness of something. Can you listen in these verses for that and write down in your work for young worshipers, what is it that he witnessed? Second Peter 1, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort, so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made it known the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty." For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. And the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but these words of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, you've granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So would you grow us in grace this morning and knowledge now as we hear your word preached that we may believe and hope in your coming. Amen. You can be seated. Well, when October comes around each year, we Protestants, and especially we Reformed folk, get kind of giddy 
Because there's a holiday approaching that under normal circumstances would rightly be celebrated uh, with, with festive food and drink and perhaps even elaborate costume and treats to share. And certainly with a, a right remembrance of the saints of generations past. I'm talking, of course, about Reformation Day, October 31st, the day celebrated for centuries as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And it's celebrated, of course, because it was the day on which that great reformer, Martin Luther, lit the spark that would grow into the flame that became the most significant movement in church history for centuries. And so we rightly celebrate it in various ways. A few years ago, when we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we here at New St. Peter's, we celebrated it like good Presbyterians by preaching a sermon series, right? on the five solas of the Reformation, the basic tenets of that movement. And I realize that some of you, especially those of you associated with our unofficial brewing group, celebrated variously, and I commend you for your festivities. And the fact is, we love being Protestant. We celebrate it, and rightly so. But what is it that we're celebrating? What is it that we love about being Protestant? Is it protest? Is it schism? Is it the richness of our intellectual heritage that we can claim as our fathers, men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and and Bavink and all of these deep thinkers, all of whom I deeply revere? Another way to ask this question is, what is at the heart of Protestantism? If you were to ask folks that question, you you may get many who respond that at the heart of Protestantism is the great article championed by Martin Luther, justification by faith alone. And they'd be partially right. We do celebrate the recovery of that gospel grace in the days of the Reformation, sola fide, faith alone. But there's another sola, which is, I think, behind and before even this one, that more formally answers the question, what does it mean to be Protestant? And that is sola scriptura, scripture alone, the biblical idea that it is the Bible itself which is our final authority for faith and practice. And this indeed, for the Reformers, was their chief concern. Scripture stands alone in its authority. It's not authenticated by or dependent on the testimony of man or the church, but wholly by God who is its author. This, this is often called the formal cause of the Reformation. That is that Scripture itself is the form or the pattern that determined the direction of the Reformation. We would not know the beauty of the doctrine of justification by faith alone if it were not clearly revealed in the Scripture. And so at the heart of our cause as Protestants is not protest for the sake of protest, but protest for the sake of faithful submission to the authoritative Word of God. And by the way, this impulse does not stop at the Reformation Right? It's been a principle that's been behind various Protestant movements right up to our day. And so at the core of Protestantism is a continual reformation according to the Word of God over against the false teaching that has sought to supplant it. And this is true for Protestants because it is true for Peter. 
In other words, the doctrine of sola scriptura does not arise from the Reformation, but from the Bible itself. And I wonder if the recovery of it is as needed for us today as it was in the time of the Reformation. In a day wrought with ideological polarization and vitriol when brother goes to war against brother in virtual forums devoid of any embodied consequence, And when every man is his own authority, feeding on his own personal truths by the way of the all-knowing blogosphere. And a day when every one of our neighbors is asking questions that only the Bible has true answers for. What has gone wrong with the world? What is the What's the essence of evil and systemic injustice? What's our only hope in a plague that brings the threat of death to our doorstep? They're thirsty for truth. And yet so often all we have to hold out to them amounts to a retreat to our political corners where we draw from wells that can never satisfy. Well, I think Peter has something to say to us on this, giving us something of a reorientation to our Protestant roots, stirring us up by way of reminder, or teaching us, in other words, how to stay Protestant. He's going to show us that the sovereign Lord of history has inspired his written word that his people might submit to its authority for doctrine and life. And he's going to show us by way of a winsome biblical defense against false teaching which had crept into the Christian community, which begged the question first, is our religion based on myth or on history? Now, it becomes apparent, excuse me, early in this text and certainly later, in this little letter, that the main theological problem posed by Peter's opponents, those who would bring in false teaching, is the delay in Christ's return. It's been some 30 years since the ascension, and so perhaps the natural question becomes, as these false teachers ask in chapter 3, where is his coming? They are betraying a kind of eschatological skepticism, as if the promise of Christ to come again and the promises throughout the Old Testament of his coming at the end of history ought to be regarded with hesitation in light of present circumstances. And in that context, these false teachers are apparently accusing Peter and the apostles of basing their doctrine of Christ's return on myth. Now, this Greek word for myth is an interesting one. You'll see it Also, in the pastoral epistles, when Paul is calling out Jewish fables or rabbinical embellishments of Old Testament history, but you'll probably be more familiar with it conceptually in the world of Greek mythology, where the myths of the gods descending to earth and interacting with men become the really the backbone of Greek thought and life. And the idea here is that, you know, it's really less important whether these myths, these stories are historically true. Often they're not. But instead, their import resided in their ability to convey religious and ethical significance. So it would seem that the accusation is, see, your religion is based on nothing but myth. How can Jesus then be set apart from the pantheon of gods worshipped in the Greek world? Or how could his coming be certain against the backdrop of Jewish speculation surrounding Old Testament prophecy. 
But look back at what Peter says in verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised myths, that is, crafty or carefully devised fables, when we taught you about Christ's coming. Instead, says Peter, our teaching is based on our eyewitness account. That's what it means to be an apostle, right? An eyewitness of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. We talked about that a little bit ago when we talked in 1 Peter 5 about the distinction between an apostle and an elder. But what did Peter say that he witnessed here? Look back at verses 17 and 18. For when he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's here referring, of course, to the transfiguration of Jesus when he took with him Peter and James and John and revealed to them there on the mountain his glory. Now, what is happening in the transfiguration? Why would Peter refer to this as a defense against the false teachers that are denying the coming of Christ in glory? He says that we ourselves were witnesses of the honor and glory he received from the Father. You'll recall that at the transfiguration, Jesus' appearance was altered. Luke tells us that his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white and he appeared in glory with Moses and Elijah speaking of his impending exodus or his departure that would soon take place. And as they're talking there on the mountain, the glory cloud of the Lord comes to overshadow them and the voice of God speaks as Peter reiterates here. Now, this event, of course, reminds us of the, the great theophanies of the Old Testament, especially when God spoke to Moses in a cloud of glory on Mount Sinai. But it also looks forward to the anticipation of the glory to come when Christ returns. It is, as it were, a foretaste of eschatological glory. And so Peter says here, we know his, he's coming in glory because we've seen it. We've seen that glory ourselves and we can testify to it. And this is not merely a fable or cleverly invented story. It happened in history. Now, this is so critical because Peter is telling us here that we can be assured of God's promises because he broke into history to fulfill them in the person of Jesus and he has left testimony, reliable historical testimony, to that very inbreaking. We don't have to invent clever stories about the gods coming down to earth because it happened in time and space. And there were witnesses to it. This is the same thing, by the way, that Paul says in defense of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians. He says, you want to know about the resurrection? Go talk to the people who witnessed it. So likewise, Peter says, you want to know about the coming of Christ in glory? Come talk to those who have seen it. And here's where this is so important, not just for Peter's audience, but for all of us. Because of the reliable, historical, apostolic testimony preserved for us in the New Testament, we can be sure that our faith is rooted in real historical events and not just cleverly devised fables. Beginning in about the 19th 
century, there was a movement in critical biblical scholarship which began to look at the gospel stories and ask the question, how much of this is really true? How much of Jesus' life and teachings recorded in the gospels is really reliable? And the idea in that movement was that there probably is just a, just a kernel of truth in the gospel stories, but we have to strip away all that is myth in order to get to it. And this, this movement later became known as the quest for the historical Jesus, as if its chief mission was to strip away all the false tradition in the gospels and get back to the Jesus of history. And we see this, by the way, we see it play out around major Christian holidays, even today. It's, it's it, all over pop culture. Like around Easter, you'll see documentaries that are kind of aimed at discovering the real Jesus over against the biblical record. Friends, this is modern skepticism at its most arrogant peak. And it is based on the false assumption that our religion is not one rooted in history. And over against this, Peter is going to tell us that the record of the apostles preserved for us in the scripture is rooted in real historical events, namely the life and death and resurrection of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Maybe this isn't the, the place for a course on textual criticism and the historical reliability of the Gospels, but I'd, I'd be delighted to have that conversation with you offline. But Peter seems to answer your next objection, which I know is this. How can we trust the record of Scripture that is preserved for us? Is it true? In other words, is it based on man's interpretation or divine inspiration? So look back at 19. Alongside this testimony, says Peter, we have the prophetic word, that is the entire Old Testament. And how is this prophetic word given? Verse 20, not by man's own interpretation, but, verse 21, by divine inspiration. Realize this is one of the most remarkable texts in the Bible that speaks to the inspiration of Scripture itself. Because what Peter's saying here is that Scripture is unlike any other written word that you will ever encounter. It is inspired by an infallible God who carried along its human authors as they wrote in such a way that it is free from error and 100% trustworthy. And, and just so we're clear on Peter's argument here, in answer to your question, how can we trust the historical reliability and the truthfulness of Scripture? Peter's answer is, do you trust God? Because he's its author. Do you believe in a sovereign God of all truth who by his Holy Spirit inspired every single word of the text? Because if you believe in a sovereign and true God, you will believe his book. Now, theologians throughout the centuries have discussed what exactly this means, that God has inspired for us the written word of the scripture in the Old and New Testaments. And as they've talked about it, as the doctrine of inspiration, they, they've spoken primarily about its nature and its extent. That is, they've really asked two big questions. What does it mean that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit? And then, how far does that inspiration extend? And so, to the first, what does it mean that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit? Does it mean that the words of Scripture were simply dictated to the human authors who were wholly passive in this process? 
That's the mode of revelation, for example, recorded in the Quran. Well, no, the Bible doesn't teach that about itself. In fact, you can see this, for example, in the introduction to Luke's gospel, where he's going to talk about the careful research that he did in coming to his historical account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. No, instead, the Bible teaches that the nature of inspiration is something like what we might call organic. That is, as J. Gresham Machen wisely said, the Holy Spirit so informed the minds of the biblical writers that they were kept from falling into the errors that mar all other books. Peter says here, men spoke, but they spoke from God. And if that sounds a bit mysterious, consider the mystery of the Incarnation. Not an exact illustration, but nevertheless, maybe a helpful analogy for us. Jesus is one person with a fully divine and human nature. How does that work? It's somewhat mysterious. The Bible is fully human in its production. It took parchment and ink, and it took a human mind to produce, and yet it is fully divine inspired by the Holy Spirit, so it is the very Word of God. And this leads to the second question that theologians have asked, which is, how far does that inspiration extend? Does it merely extend to kind of the the thought processes of the human author, or or maybe just did the Holy Spirit kind of give them their major themes and major movements and and then step back a little bit? Or does it extend to every single word of Scripture? Is every word written in the Bible God's word to us? And conservative Protestant theologians have answered that question in the positive, yes. Peter here is teaching us that every word of Scripture is the very word of God. And again, this is vastly important for us as if we're asking the question, how are we to stay Protestant? How are we to stay faithful to sola scriptura? Well, B.B. Warfield is a giant in this area of theological reflection. He spent much of his career at Princeton Seminary defending the inspiration and authority of Scripture over against kind of an increasing theological liberalism and biblical skepticism. And Warfield makes the point that the only way that you get to a doctrine of inerrancy, that is the belief that the scripture is 100% without error, is by maintaining a doctrine of verbal inspiration. That is that God, by his spirit, inspired every word of scripture. And then he notes this, as did others who sought to maintain orthodoxy over against some of the rising skepticism in the 19th and 20th centuries. He says, if you're going to throw out the doctrine of verbal inspiration of the scriptures, then you may as well throw out every Christian creed because you've started a new religion. Yeah, I just said that. Actually, Warfield did. And J. Gresham Machen, who I mentioned earlier, made this point in his famous work, Christianity and liberalism, and his main point is that what was called modernism in his day or theological liberalism with its inherently skeptical treatment of God's word ends up 
Not with Christianity, but with a new religion. And is this not Peter's point here? Sure, you can deny the doctrine of the second coming, but the only way you get there is if you first deny the apostolic testimony and the prophetic word of the Old Testament. And by the way, notice what he says about the apostolic testimony back in verse 19, that it confirms the prophetic word of the Old Testament. It confirms the prophetic word about Jesus' coming. Peter's not pitting his testimony in the New Testament against the Old Testament word of prophecy. Instead, he's saying the apostolic testimony, which is recorded for us in the New Testament, confirms the prophetic word of the Old Testament. They are related to each other by promise and fulfillment. Kind of like God actually knew what he was doing in history. Friends, I don't believe that it is a stretch to agree with Warfield and Machen and countless others when they tell us that the orthodox doctrine of inspiration, orthodox, excuse me, doctrine of inspiration is absolutely essential to the maintenance of orthodox Christianity. And as we've said all along, Peter, one of, one of his main goals here is to show us that orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy, that is, Right doctrine leads to right living, which is why Peter's overarching concern here is this, that the way you look at and interact with the Scripture as the very words of God reveals your trust in either man's autonomy or God's authority. Notice, this is not a debate about the timing of Christ's return. Do you you hear that? This is not different theological camps getting together and talking about when and where and how Jesus will return to usher in the consummation of his kingdom. That's, there's clearly a lot of room to discuss those views within Christian theology. But Peter's opponents here are questioning whether Jesus will return at all. Something promised again and again in the apostolic testimony of the New Testament and the prophetic word of the Old Testament So you see, Peter's main concern here is if you deny the return of Christ in glory, you are rejecting the authority of the God who has given his inspired word, which which testifies to that very return. We are not following cleverly devised myths, says Peter. Instead, we are subordinating ourselves to the authority of the God who speaks. And we trust in his word. And friends, my concern for us as we wrap up this morning is to ask ourselves this question. In matters of faith and practice, are we subordinating ourselves to the God who speaks by trusting in his inspired and therefore inerrant word? I mentioned earlier that our our world is asking questions that only the Bible has true answers for. And by that, I mean that we are asking questions that only the Bible has answers for. All of us are asking them, is there such a thing as systemic evil? How are we to think about sins like racism and sins like violence against property and people? How are we to think about political candidates and their moral corruption? 
How are we to think about protecting and preserving life in a pandemic? And can I be honest with you? I'm, I'm concerned that when we think about those things over the past six months or so, that we, we find ourselves pulled toward the quick fix of things like blogs and tweets and partisan solutions before submitting ourselves to the inspired and authoritative word of God. Which is, by the way, way more difficult because it doesn't always agree with us. Brothers and sisters, the heart of our Protestant religion is a return over and over again to the word of God as our final authority. And we have a rich tradition here, right? That's what we celebrate when we celebrate the Reformation. You go and look at our confessional documents and how they flow from and subordinate themselves to the authority of the Word of God. And that's why the Reformers and subsequent generations, as did Christians before them, produce things like confessions and creeds and catechisms because they recognize that we have a God who has spoken finally and authoritatively. And we want to declare what he has declared over against the false teaching that will always attempt to creep into his church. That's what a creed or confession is. That's why tradition subordinate to scripture is a good thing. That's what it means in Jude to contend for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. That is, to stand firm on and fight vigilantly for the truths of the Word of God delivered once for all to His people in the Scriptures. That's what it means to stay Protestant. May we return again and again to the wonderful Word of God given to us in this glorious book. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Our Father, you have spoken to us by your word. You have bound yourself to us by way of your covenant. And as we come to celebrate even now another sign and seal of that gracious covenant, would you stamp this word upon our hearts and would you meet with us here at your table in Jesus' name. Amen.